Welcome to Navigating Your Child's Education, a podcast for parents, grandparents, and anyone raising or influencing young people. I'm your host, Laura. On this episode, we have the distinct honor of learning from Dr. Jay McTie. Dr. McTie is an accomplished author of 17 books, including the award-winning and best-selling Understanding by Design series with Dr. Grant Wiggins. His books have been translated into 12 languages, and he's written more than 50 articles and book chapters and has been published in leading journals like Educational Leadership and Education Week. He has an extensive background in professional development and is a regular speaker at national, state, and district conferences and workshops. He's conducted workshops in 47 states in the U.S., seven Canadian provinces, and internationally to educators in 35 countries on six continents. Dr. McTai, thank you so much for being with us today. I'd like to start off with an elevator pitch of sorts. You have from the time it takes to get from the bottom to the top floor of a building to answer what is understanding by design? How would you explain it? My first question would be how tall is the building? So I never <laughs> understand that. Uh, no, seriously, um, the, the key ideas of understanding by design are found in its title. Understanding by design is basically a curriculum planning framework that impacts how we plan the curriculum, how we assess learning, and ultimately how we teach and the learning activities. And so the focus of understanding by design is focus on understanding, not just trying to cover lots of content superficially, but uh, identify the most important ideas and processes that we want kids to really understand. And those would be the priorities for our teaching, our curriculum, and our assessment. The by design part of our title refers to a planning process that Grant Wiggins and I have described as three stages. Uh, a process by which teachers can plan their teaching, but also at the school level, you can plan the entire school curriculum backward from the goals of understanding, ultimately so that students can transfer their learning. That to me is the ultimate goal of a modern education. Now, that is a lot of education ease and teacher talk. Why does this matter or why should it matter to parents? So, so let me begin to answer that question by posing questions to listeners who I presume are parents. So think about your own uh, school experiences. And I'm thinking particularly in, in kindergarten through 12th grade, as opposed to university, if you, if you attended university. So think about your experiences. Can you think of things that you were asked to learn or expected to learn in school that you couldn't understand why you had to learn them? didn't think they were important. Have you, or can you remember things that you were asked to learn that you thought were important or you, you tried to learn, but in reality, you never really understood them deeply. And to this day, you couldn't really explain them, even though you might remember some of the, <laughs> sure. the vocabulary. Were you ever asked to learn things that you saw no purpose for? Did you ever ask the question, why do we have to learn this? Were you ever bored in school as a student? These are real questions, and my experience is, both in my own life and my life of my children and, and many people I've talked with, the answer in many cases is yes to all of these. So why should this matter? Why should the fact that a school is using Understanding by Design as a framework matter to parents and to students? Because quite literally and quite frankly, the ideas of Understanding by Design are meant to address these potential problems in learning. We want to make sure that we're focusing on content or learning that is important, is seen by the learner as relevant. And in some cases, we have to help them see relevance. It may not be obvious initially. 
We want learning that is active and engaging for the learner. And I don't just mean fun or frivolous, but intellectually engaging in a way that makes them interested uh, as opposed to bored. We want them to see relevance in what they're learning. And ultimately, we want learning that endures, that doesn't fade away after you got through the test. And so those are the reasons that when, when understanding by design is applied effectively, those are the very direct impacts that we should be able to see in learners. And as a parent, when students come home and they're excited about what they did in school, they might be challenged by something and they think about it when they don't have to. When they talk about ideas and even questions at the dinner table, those are the signs that school is engaging and relevant. And that's what we want. We want more of that. And UBD is designed to make that more likely for more students. Now, I think you hinted at this a little bit, but what? how is understanding by design different from traditional methods of planning, instruction, and assessment? It's a great question. And, and there are a couple of different answers or ways of answering it. One way I'll answer it is that I think in, in many cases, uh, education has been seen as a process of covering lots of content. And as you go up the grades, the content demands of subjects increases. The textbooks seem to get larger with every new edition. And in subjects like science or history, by definition, there's more content every day. Um, and so I often hear teachers talking about oh, I've got so much to, quote, cover. And, and that's a very real problem. The problem, though, that is if our goal is to cover lots of content, and there is a lot of content in most subject areas, well, we can talk faster in class and we'll get through it. But the goal is not what we cover. The goal is what students learn from our teaching and what they can do with what they've learned. And so when, when traditional forms of instruction are simply covering lots of things, and testing to see if kids remember those things. Uh, my, my view is that that's outdated and that's not serving modern learning well. Understanding by design is different from that by saying the teacher, first of all, all content is not equal. Some ideas are more important than others. There are processes in every discipline that we want students to learn and to be able to enact. And so let's start by prioritizing and focusing. Secondly, if you're really after understanding and transfer, which ultimately is our goal, that, that a student can apply their learning to something new, as opposed to just remembering it and giving it back, then we've got to teach in a way that engages their thinking and gives them lots of practice trying to apply their learning uh, to new situations. So that's different than the, I've got to pour all this information in, then I'm going to test to see if they remember it. We're advocating we want to teach for understanding, focusing on the most important ideas and processes, give kids experience in applying their learning in authentic, relevant situations so they see value, and assessing not just do you remember something, but can you use it? And across our country, how many schools or districts would you say are beginning to implement understanding by design in, in their buildings? I can't give you a precise number. I can tell you I've worked with thousands of educators, uh, not only in the U.S., but all over the world. You, understanding by design is, is a quite recognized and widely used curriculum planning framework. Um, having said that, I will also be honest and say the implementation of the ideas of UBD vary. Um, it's not an easy planning framework for teachers uh, very often. 
Um, and it may be at odds with how they were taught or what they have done in the past. And so in that regard, like any new thing, it, it takes practice and it takes uh, diligence and persistence to, to really come to understand and to use the ideas of UBD well. But it is correct to say it is a widely used framework, literally in schools around the world. Now, let's say I'm a parent and I hear that my child's school has embraced understanding by design as a way of designing learning opportunities for students. Can you help me understand what this means for my child and how this might be the same or different from what I likely experienced as a young student? Uh, Yeah, another great question. Let me start by stepping back from the immediate question and and posing a, a, a related question. What should be the priorities of a modern education. And and think about it. We're preparing today's students for a world that's increasingly complex, interconnected, and in fact, unpredictable. And the the pandemic that we and the world is, is now suffering through is a sobering reminder of if anything is predictable, it's the fact that things are not predictable. The pandemic was on very few radar screens 19 months ago, and yet it has been arguably one of the most impactful experiences uh, and stressful experiences of our of our collective lives. Um, and so it's to, to get more into the question, I want to state the following. I propose that a modern education should ultimately prepare students to be able to apply their learning to new and even unpredictable situations and circumstances. That's different than an education that fills students' heads with facts and hopes that they can remember them. That kind of rote learning approach that some, if not many of us experience, I just don't think is the proper preparation for modern education. Uh, Now, more specifically, understanding by design proposes, as I mentioned um, previously, that we want to be able to prioritize and focus the curriculum on the most important learning outcomes, not just factual remembering, but understanding so you can use your learning. More specifically, we also contend that understanding must be earned by the learner. By that, I mean, you just can't give a student a big understanding or or say a concept and now they completely grasp it. To really come to understand something, you've got to think about it. You've got to try it out. Maybe you have to listen to other perspectives. Uh, You need to get feedback and try again to get better. Uh, In other words, understanding requires a very active learning process. And so that's one of the things that might be different from when um, listeners were in school. And certainly when I was in school, my learning experience, for the most part, was very passive. Teachers presented stuff to me or I read a textbook and I memorized stuff for a test, which often I didn't understand and quickly forgot. We want an alternative to that. We want to engage students in active, I call it meaning making by discussing and debating interesting questions, by trying to solve problems, by engaging in what I might call design thinking, uh, by listening to others, by working in groups to try to solve a problem, by trying to express myself in writing and visually and verbally through different media. These are the ways we get kids actively involved in making meaning. And to me, it has a dual benefit, this kind of approach. One, it keeps kids engaged and excited by school, and you see it around the dinner table when they are. Um, And secondly, it results in deeper, meaningful, more lasting learning. Now, what about 
state and national benchmark testing. You know, as parents, we know that our students are going to be assessed. They're going, there's national tests and there's state tests. How does Understanding by Design fit in with these existing benchmarks? Uh, great question. I'm going to answer, my answer will be in two parts for this question. Uh, the first part is national or state standardized tests are in place for particular purposes. State tests, I know that public schools are required to take, are for school accountability, right? Policymakers and parents, community members and employers need to have some basis for gauging the quality and the, and the performance of schools. And so standardized tests are the primary method for doing so. And I actually worked at the state level in Maryland for nine years in the decade of the 90s. And I was involved in state assessments in Maryland. So I'm very familiar with standardized and state accountability tests. But some things we know about them. Number one, in most states, they are primarily multiple choice in nature. That's the format. Well, that's no surprise. Why are they multiple choice? Because in Ohio, they're testing 50, 100,000 kids in a grade level. Nationally, we're testing millions of kids. The scale of testing has to be manageable. And that relates to scoring. You can score multiple choice tests with machines, get the scores quickly. You also need them to be standardized for comparability purposes. Um, and so they have to be comparable for the purposes of accountability, right? Um, so that's all well and good. We understand what those are, but they're not, every, and they're not everything and, and all things. They assess certain learning goals well and they completely miss other arguably very important learning goals. So the, I guess point number one I wanna make is, we know that what standardized tests are for, we know the format, but we also need to be honest and recognize that they're only assessing a small part of all the learning goals that we value and that we want our students to experience. That's not a criticism of standardized tests, but it's a reminder that they're not, that's not all there is. A related point, Standardized tests might occur for two, three, maybe up to a week in the school, a school year. I call that a snapshot. It's a moment in time picture of what students know and can do based on a multiple choice standardized test. What are we going to do the other 175 days with kids? My contention is we need to go back to our most important goals for learning. And by the way, if any parents or, or employers or work for companies Think about the skill sets that are important in your field or go online, look at a group called NACE, N-A-C-E, the National Association of Colleges and Employers. Look at their survey of skills or go to the World Economic Forum if you want to be international and look at the job skills that are being called for. And what you'll see in any kinds of those analyses are the following creative problem solving ability to work effectively with others, um, effective communication skills in various media, perseverance and persistence, ability to, to learn new things on your own, self-directed learning. These are the competencies that the world is calling for. None of those or few of those are effectively assessed with multiple choice tests. Again, that's not to criticize the state tests or the national tests as much as it is to recognize that there are things that are falling through the cracks. Therefore, and this is the answer to your question, understanding by design 
strongly emphasizes the use of more authentic performance-based assessments at the school, at the classroom level. If anything, it provides the counterbalance to a very narrow type of assessment that standardized tests offer. Think of the driver's test as a practical example, right? In most states, the driver's test, there's a written portion, and it's usually multiple choice, which is an appropriate way of assessing certain things important to driving, like knowing the rules of the road. But we also have a performance-based assessment, right? The driving test. I wouldn't want to live in a state that gave out driver's licenses for people that only passed a written test and had never been behind the wheel. <laughs> that's right? a good point. Mm -hmm. So that's all I'm saying. We need to recognize that there are certain, in fact, arguably the most important goals of a modern education are not appropriately or effectively assessed with a once a year snapshot multiple choice test. The best evidence of learning the most important things are the assessments that we develop and use with kids in our classrooms and in our schools. And I'm arguing they should be much more authentic than multiple choice standardized tests. That was a long answer, but that's only part one. I'll, I'll be more succinct in my part two answer. This may be more for educators than parents, but parents should, should recognize this. I'll ask it as a question. What are the most widely missed items on state standardized tests? And you can go online. Many state ed departments publish test results and they do the item analysis. So you can find this out. The most widely missed items are not items of recall or very basic skills. The items that are most widely missed, for instance, in reading, involve interpretation, reading between the lines, not literal meaning. The most widely missed items in mathematics are not the plug-in, you know, memorized formula. They are word problems that are multi-step and involve reasoning. People often conflate format with rigor. And sometimes the assumption is, well, it's multiple choice and there's a single answer. So it's just factual recall that they're assessing. But in fact, the most widely missed items are items that require understanding, reasoning, interpretation. And so to me, the therefore is, what's the best test prep for standardized tests? Not doing a bunch of multiple choice practice worksheets that are low level, which is often what we see in test prep stuff, by the way, which kids, by the way, find boring and uninteresting. The best test prep is what understanding by design encourages, which is make sure you're assessing not just factual learning. There's a place for that, but you're assessing understanding. You're assessing if kids can apply their learning. You're assessing reasoning, interpretation, calling for explanation calling for application. And if kids can do those things on your regular assessments, they will be well prepared for the kinds of items that they see on state standardized tests. Let me conclude my long answer here. In no way am I suggesting that we don't care about factual knowledge or basic skills, right? Those are foundational and kids can't do anything without those basics. But what I am saying is the basics should be considered the floor, not the ceiling. And our assessment should do more than just measure if kids can pick the right answer from four alternatives, because that's not the way the world works. That's not what employers are calling for. And that's not going to make you a successful person by itself. We need a much more authentic array of genuine uh, assessment evidence. And that's what UBD promotes. Hi, parents. I just want to take a minute and let you know about a free guide to paying for a private Christian education. 
Perhaps you're curious about sending your children to Worthington Christian School, but assume the cost is prohibitive. Before you rule it out, I encourage you to check out worthingtonchristian.com forward slash affordwc to download a free guide to our financial aid program, 529 accounts, Ohio's Ed Choice Scholarship Program, and more. That's worthingtonchristian.com forward slash affordwc. Now back to our show. Now you've touched on this in a couple of different things that you've said. You've referred to the need for a modern education compared to what was given and delivered years ago. We live in a world now of Google and YouTube and kids have access to to those facts, to that information all around them. So how does the way we do school need to shift in light of this access to information? Is it shifting? And do you see understanding by design fitting into that shift in any way? Another great question. I think the fact that we can now Google the world's information on a handheld device does absolutely uh, or should impact how we teach, how we assess, and even what we target as our goals. So in no particular order, the fact that we can find information literally like that, to me suggests that one of the basic skills of modern education will be how do you find information? That's pretty straightforward, but more importantly, How do you critically appraise it to know that the information you're finding is accurate, complete, unbiased, timely? Um, And so the idea of critical thinking and and being able to appraise information and information sources is a basic. The second thing is because the world is changing and, and if anything, you're expected to learn new things on the job throughout your life. I think targeting what I'll call self-directed learning is really critical Hmm. Um, and helping students not just sit back passively and be told what they have to do next, but be given opportunities to go find out information, try to solve problems, try to think about and address issues where the ability to find information is a basic, but then what do you do with what you find? Those to me are the critical skills that should be emphasized. To be more blunt, many of the facts that I remember having to memorize are now a click away. I don't have to burden my memory on those things. What what I need to be able to do is to understand how to find the information I need, how to process it, and and how to use it in productive ways. Uh, That's what understanding by design uh, really emphasizes. Now, I'm guessing that understanding by design it seems like it naturally sets the bar very high for student learning. So it's not just, like you said, memorizing facts or can you answer these multiple choice questions? I'm guessing it's far more challenging. Would you agree with that? Yeah, life is challenging, right? Doesn't mean we don't engage in it. So I would say it this way. If we frame the content we're teaching and we frame what we want students to learn around important ideas and processes and we give them much more experience than maybe we've experienced in school of trying to apply their learning to relevant, authentic situations. Um, Yeah, it it will be hard, but we wanna support them in tackling worthy challenges, right? So think about what the coach does in athletics, even for beginners. We, We show them the game. This is exciting, this is engaging, this is a worthy goal. 
But then we, we break down the performance to look at the skills that you're going to need. And with young kids, we break it down very specifically. We give them direct instruction and modeling, and we give them lots of practice. We give them lots of feedback. We don't put them in. I was a swim coach, but we don't throw beginner swimmers in the deep end, right? We, we get them in the, in the stages. Um, but we bring them along and we celebrate growth and progress along the way. That's really important. Um, but if the student sees what they're being asked to learn as relevant, as worthwhile, if they think that it's a, something they can accomplish with support, and if they have opportunities to get a lot of feedback and support without being judged too harshly prematurely, most students will, will take up the challenge in the ways that we see when kids get into extracurriculars. And often the, that's their passion. That's where they put their energy, in sports, in drama, in newspaper, in debate, uh, in band. Um, so I think we should treat uh, school that way. Now, I heard an educator explain that with the framework of understanding by design, there's not always this instant or immediate gratification in okay, I copied these notes and I answered these questions and I got something figured out today in class. It's more of a long process of learning and deeper understanding. And like you said earlier, it's almost like students um, are encouraged to really wrestle with material and content. Would you say that that's true? I'd say that that's true, but I would also observe that the the idea that that learning has to yield short-term immediate gratification doesn't necessarily hold. I mean, take athletics. If you're a five-year-old learning, looking to play soccer for the first time, you're not going to be gratified by the first time on the field probably, or, you know, shooting baskets and missing the whole, the whole rim. Um, but if, but if you see something as worthwhile and if it's presented as authentic, relevant and worthy, um, I think you don't expect immediate gratification, but so I'm not apologizing for that, but I would also say that the act of engaging in meaningful work in school is itself rewarding and, and intrinsically motivating. Um, so yeah, I don't apologize for understanding by design being quote rigorous, but I also say it when done well, it, it's interesting. It's engaging. You know, a friend of mine says a, a, a good question, which, by the way, we use a lot in understanding by design, essential questions. A good question is like an itch. You want to scratch it. Um, and that's what, to me, good education is. You want to itch the mind. You want to engage students in wanting to think, wanting to get into something deeply because they see it as worthwhile and, and they feel a sense of accomplishment when they can achieve it. What advice would you give to parents to help? their students navigate a sort of frustration in this learning process? It's a, it's a good question. It's a little difficult for me to generalize because I, I, I'd really want to get more pointed to the source of frustration. It, it, it could be very well that the teacher is the source of frustration by trying to present too much information or, or presenting it in ways that aren't engaging to the student or challenging them without appropriate support. So if that were the case, then I would want to explore that with the teacher and at least try to determine if, if that's the case. But on the, on the learner side, I think it's what we all want to do as parents. I'm, I'm now a grandparent and I'm seeing that in my grandchildren, uh, frustration, uh, 
in school and in life. And I think, you know, just being honest with them and trying to help them learn strategies that will help them cope, both strategies to help them de-stress, and there are many ways of doing that, and also techniques and study skills and things that will help them acquire new information or acquire knowledge in new ways or effective ways for them. I mean, a simple one is people have different preferences for how they learn. Um, And helping a student become aware of their own learning preferences can be enormously helpful. For example, I know, I've come to know that I'm a visual learner. So for me, kind of visually representing ideas, creating a mind map or a web, seeing a graphic organizer more generally helps me process information and make sense of it. Other learners have different modes. Some people really need to talk things through. So I remember my uh, daughter when she was in middle school was really struggling in mathematics. And my wife and I decided that our strategy for her was to have her teach us what she had been taught that day or what was in the textbook. And literally every night after dinner, she had to explain it to us. It was tedious for a while and there were tears, but I can, I can verify. And by the way, she verifies as an adult now that made a huge difference in her comprehension of math and her de-stressing about the fact that it was hard. There are books on this as well, which uh, of course parents can get, but those are my short uh, answers. I noticed that one of your most recent books that you've contributed to was on neuroscience and more recent findings in neuroscience and how that should impact education. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I had the, the great pleasure of working with a person who's now a good friend of mine, Dr. Judy Willis. And Dr. Willis is a neurologist who spent 25 years in neurology practice, specializing on child and adolescent neurology. And then in a, in a remarkable to me career change, took a leave of absence from her practice, went back and got a master's degree in education and became a teacher and taught for 10 years, grade two, grade five, and grade seven. She's an extraordinary and interesting person. And I've learned a lot working with her. But let me summarize some of the insights that we get from the brain and learning and the neurosciences. And I'll I'll present it as a framework that, that I found very practical and useful. Think about factors that influence students' willingness to put forth effort in school, willingness to take on hard challenges, and persist. And you can break them into two categories. One is what we, in our book, call climate variables. And the second are task variables. And let me comment on each briefly. Climate variables include something as fundamental or as basic as if you're a student in school or an adult in a meeting, if you're tired, if you've been sitting too long, if you haven't eaten and you're getting a sugar headache or a sugar rush, basic comfort factors influence your ability to attend and, and to really learn. So that's pretty basic. But that includes things, uh, practices like get the kids up and moving physically, don't do too much overload, make sure the temperature is comfortable. Those are very basic. A more fundamental part of climate has to do with psychological uh, safety. And that includes having a safe space. And let's face it, there are schools and communities in this country where kids feel unsafe walking to school. They can be shaken down for their lunch money if they go to the bathroom so they don't. They can be bullied. And we know the brain under stress reverts to its primitive state and the fight, flight, freeze responses kick in. And those are against deep, meaningful learning. They'll they'll interfere with deep learning. 
So having both physical and psychological safety is important. And the best teachers create, the best schools are safe and the best classrooms create a climate of acceptance, no bullying allowed, a lot of cooperation, getting to know and working together. And those help on the, on the climate front. On the task front, this is where understanding by design really, I think, can be Im- impactful in a good way. What are the factors that influence students' willingness to put forth effort and persevere in learning? Well, one of the factors is task clarity. Does the student understand what the learning goals are? And that includes how they're being assessed. So one of the practices in understanding by design is you make your learning goals not only clear to the student in terms of objectives, but you frame the learning through essential questions. And these are posted on the board or on the wall. So they're always with you. Secondly, you tell the students how they'll be assessed. And because we emphasize authentic performance assessment, we're going to present the student early on with one or more performance tasks that they're going to be asked to do in two weeks, three weeks, six weeks. Just like in athletics, the kids know the game is what they're practicing for. The theater kids know the opening date for the play. And we plan backward from authentic performance. That brings purpose and focus. So task clarity is important. And if teachers use UBD well, they'll be crystal clear, not only for themselves, but with their students. Second task variable is relevance or purpose. The extent to which a learner sees that what they're being asked to learn is worthwhile and relevant to them is important. That's why framing learning around authentic, relevant tasks, as opposed to multiple choice test prep, is so significant. And finally, and importantly, the student's perception of their ability to be at least moderately successful in the learning goals and in the assessments is a factor. Think about it as an adult. If you're put in a learning situation that either you think is completely worthless and or you think is so far beyond you, there's no way you're going to do well, what are you going to do? Fight, flight, freeze responses kick in. You're going to drop out. You'll show up, but you're going to shut down. You're just not going to do anything. Or you're going to act up, which is sometimes what we see kids do. Behavior problems are often a manifestation of their perception that they can't be successful in this. So I don't want to be embarrassed. I'd rather go to the principal's office. And so how do we make learning more likely to be succeeding for students? We not only give them clear goals and worthy tasks, but we give them the support they need. Teaching, tutorial help if needed scaffolding, which is an education term, like I'm going to give you a checklist as you work through the project. I'm going to give you a graphic organizer to help you organize your ideas before you write or speak. We give them support. And thirdly, we honor their progress, which is what that P of grading does. Because if I'm honored and acknowledged for making growth towards something that's difficult, I'm more likely to persist then if I get criticized all the time, why would I want to, why would I want to consider? Think about video games and video gamers. This is something that Dr. Willis studied, in fact, and others have studied. And I've seen research that says when a, stu- a kid is playing a video game, particularly one of those, those strategy games, even the online versions, they are failing up to 80 to 90% of the time. It's a hard challenge. Why do they persist in, in a hard challenge like that? Well, notice what video games offer. Video games bring you in at a level just a little beyond your confidence. And you try to play the game. 
but they give you tips or they give you points and eventually you make it. And when you make it, you get points or bells and whistles or uh, you get to the next level. And so from the brain point of view, the brain, literally, Judy Wellis describes this, the brain gives a squirt of dopamine when you get to the next level. I've heard parents say, oh, my kids, particularly my, my sons, addicted to video games. Judy Wells says, well, that's because they are. Because you literally are getting a brain reinforcement of dopamine when you get to the next level in a video game. So in our book, we've described that as a process that teachers can emulate in their classrooms. Have a worthy goal that's beyond what the kids can do now, but bring them in at a level that's what Judy calls their achievable challenge and give them support and celebrate when they get to that next level. And those are the things that impact students' willingness to put forth effort even when, when challenged or when the challenge is, is significant. And these are practices that we've written about, that we encourage, and um, that I know can make a difference. Wow, that's fascinating. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. It's been an honor to talk to you and learn from you, and I'm looking forward to sharing this with our listeners. Well, thanks. It's a great set of questions you, you pose, so happy to be with you. A new episode of the Navigating Your Child's Education podcast is published the first and third Wednesday of each month. Make sure to subscribe to stay up to speed as each episode comes out. And don't forget to leave us a rating and a comment on iTunes.